Hey Kiddo, a podcast about talking to kids about the everyday and the extraordinary. I'm your host, Kate Brown, and as always, I'm joined by Hey Kiddo founder, psychologist, executive leadership coach, and head mama in charge, Nicole Lipkin. Dr. Nicole Lipkin. Hello, Dr. Lipkin. Hello, Dr. Brown. (laughs) (laughs) It's so nice to talk to you. I have just been on vacation. I've I've come back. And you know, vacation, we're, we're kind of right now recording this going into summer and it's time for fun and the topic of the day, which is play. But I can't say that on vacation, I really felt like I was playing. Like, I think it's a very distinct activity. You know, kids play all the time, but adults, I don't know if we do. So can you remember the last time that you played? Yesterday with my child. <laughs> and I don't think I'm as good at it as I want to be. Play anxiety is real. There's some play anxiety, but what I've noticed is playing with Charlie, my imagination is coming to life again. Like it's kind mm. of like getting a kickstart, like, you know, watching him start to imagine and do all these things with his toys and his cars. Like my brain is starting to come alive again. So I am realizing for like, I've always known it, but I'm feeling the benefits of play as adults. I think that's what I'm getting, you know, like I'm missing that feeling. Just downtime isn't necessarily the same. And kids are great for, you know, kind of forcing us into these, you know, you probably would have played otherwise, but when toddlers coming at you with dinosaurs and trucks and cars and dolls, like that that's a fun time. That's different. I've forgotten. My kiddo is eight and he doesn't play in the same way that he used to. So I'm hoping that today's guest can assuage some of our play anxiety. <laughs> so excited to have Dr. Christy Brumfield with us today. She's a licensed professional counselor, registered play therapist, clinical supervisor, and a nationally certified counselor. Uh, Christy relocated to Philadelphia from New Orleans after spending more than 10 years working with children, adolescents, and families, providing counseling from a client-centered, strength-based perspective. If that were not enough, Dr. Brumfield is currently a professor at Immaculata University teaching counseling and play therapy to clinical mental health counselors and doctoral psychology students. Welcome, Christy. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Yay. This is this is the you. portion of the show where I talk about play being serious business, and it sounds like it is for you. Um, I kind of want to talk about this play anxiety, but I feel like we're going to get it get to it in a little bit. But you know, I'm not. You and Nicole are psychologists, and you're professionals, and you work in clinical settings. I am not. I am just a layperson. So, can you tell us what play therapy is? Well, for the sake of my profession, I'll clarify, you'd say I'm not a psychologist, but I'm a counselor, but that's okay. We're very sibling professions. We are. Um, (laughs) And it was, it was so, as I was listening to the two of you talk, I was thinking, oh, definitely play more. Adults should play a bunch. And I think that's like the best part about my job, or it used to be before COVID stopped me from being able to do it, is I get to play with so many kids at different ages and stages. I have got a daughter who is three months from three, right? And so the way she plays is super different from the way that lots of my clients play. But 
fun all the same. And the way adults play is different too. And while I was saying all that stuff, Kate, I totally forgot what your question was. <laughs> well, I, was asking, I was asking about play therapy. And I think that that's, yeah. you know, for folks outside of the profession, you know, yeah. we don't realize that play is serious business, has professional yeah. and, you know, psychological implications. And maybe some of that wording gets a little lost about what it is that everyone does. So professionally, you know, what is play therapy and how is it different from just, oh, I'm going to make some intentional time to go play with my kid. And so play therapy, the way that I describe it as simply and directly to parents as possible is play is the language of children and the toys are kind of like their words. And so if you've ever played with a child for more than 10 minutes, you can figure out all the things that happen in their houses, all the things that happen at school, the thing their mom said on the phone, the thing their teacher did when she got frustrated, all of that you see right away. Um, The official definition of play therapy, right? So more than just the language of children, Um, and using the toys as their words. The Association for Play Therapy um, has created a definition um, that's just that it's the systematic use of a theoretical model to establish an interpersonal process wherein trained play therapists use the therapeutic powers of play to help clients prevent or resolve psychosocial difficulties and achieve optimal growth and development. Right. So that's a whole bunch. But basically, (laughs) they're saying all that to say that for children, play therapy does kind of the same thing that therapy does for adults. It gives you a space to talk through and think through things that are challenging or difficult or even things that are kind of wonderful and exciting Um, for it really kind of honors developmentally where children are. And so when I gave that tangential answer answer earlier, right, and I was talking about my two-year-old and what she does and how it looks compared to maybe a 12-year-old. And so it gives you the chance to be really developmentally appropriate. Um, I see child and adult clients. I've got Nicole to thank for that. When I was in New Orleans, I only saw children. I always said the only way I want to work with adults is in the context of their family. So I talked to parents because you kind of had to. Um, But then when I moved to Philadelphia and joined the team at Equilibria, I started to see adults. And a lot of what I do with kids kind of spills over. And so A part of that definition is that play therapy is this theoretically grounded thing. And so what I do is called child-centered play therapy, which means the child is in charge um, in their session. And so it's really kind of created a space where I can trust adults to be in charge of adult sessions. Um, And I think children just don't have a lot of power in a lot of spaces in their lives. They don't get to make a lot of choices. And so it's so, like you can see in their eyes when they're like, thinking, wait, wait, are you, do I really get to pick what I, you're not going to tell me what to do? You're not going to tell me how to play with this. So I see you've got a dollhouse, but you're not going to tell me I've got to go and act out this. And so it's interesting for some children. It's amazing. And for some children, it's a little bit scary, right? Because they live such structured lives and their parents are really kind of dictating even how they play or setting up play dates. And and there's just a lot of rules for things. Um, And so not that in my playroom, there are no rules. We've got to stay safe. You can't hurt yourself. You can't hurt me. Um, But it's just a really free space for children to be themselves. Mm. Kind of reminds me a a little bit of um, the Montessori method, you know, that, that 
you, you follow, you follow the guide of, of, of the child, which is hard. It's hard. I think it's hard as a parent to like all these rules and things that we've, you know, that are ingrained in our brain of how life should be from our experience. It's hard to all of a sudden let that go and just be in a room with a child playing or letting them direct the play. It's, it's hard. Absolutely. And I, I think it's hard. And I think for parents, my usual, so I recommend playing with your children, right? What I always tell parents is what do you want your child's memories to be of their interactions with you when they're adults? Mm -hmm. Um, And usually parents don't want it to be a person that's fussing about chores or asking them to do their homework, even though that's a necessary part of parenting. Um, And so what I like to teach parents is just 30 minutes once a week, right, where a parent can do some of the same things I do in the playroom where the child is in charge. At home, it doesn't necessarily make sense for your child to be in charge all the time. But being able to make choices and have some power in decision making in a way that's developmentally appropriate, I think can go a really long way. Yeah, that's in, that's that's interesting. So even just 30, 30 minutes, letting your child kind of dictate the imagination of what it's going to be. I love that. I love that. Is that like and 30 minutes is it? 30 minutes once a week. Right. And it it tends to so it's a process it's called child parent relationship training since i moved to pennsylvania i recognize that there are more people who do other forms of filial here just because some of the the founders of some of those filial methods are from here because i'm from louisiana um the child-centered approach and the child parent relationship training is what they were doing in texas right next door to us and so that was what i was trained in but still this idea where the parent can be the change agent. And it really is 30 minutes once a week, but then it changes all of your other interactions. You start to notice, right, the feelings. And so you reflect them a little bit differently. You start to notice ways that you'd like to give more choices, Mm -hmm. Um, but you don't have to be on all the time. It would be exhausting. So let me ask you a question about choices, because I think this is interesting. You know, as you start going up in the age, you know, choices for adults, can be, I, I know sometimes when my husband says, Hey, what do you want for, for dinner? I want to, I want to freak out just with that question, <laughs> because by the end of the day, like I've made too many decisions and choices. So choice and power can be so difficult for humans in general. So help me understand that with kids. Um, how much choice should you give? Well, and so I think um, this notion, right, of not overdosing on choices. And so everything can't be a choice. And so little kids get little choices, big kids get big choices. But just like it's hard for us as adults, right, to be making choices constantly, for kids it is too. So, but helping to manage choices. And so for really little kids, I think giving them sort of sets of two things. Do you want to wear your red socks or do you want to wear your blue socks? Okay. Um, I will admit that as a parent, even though I keep blaming it on the fact that Kira's not three yet, and three is the age that I start for play therapy, in August we'll be there, and I don't think that this situation will have resolved itself. But most mornings I say, Kira, do you want to wear your white shoes or your blue shoes? And she says, no, purple shoes, because her purple shoes are her favorite. And so 
I'm, I'm not doing the thing that I teach parents to do, but it's like limit the choices to two things. And then if they don't pick one of those and say, oh, I know that you really want to wear your purple shoes, but that's not one of the two choices. I am usually in a gigantic rush. And so it's just like, oh, you want to wear your purple shoes? Whatever. We'll wear purple shoes again today. And so I understand. So being a little bit flexible with yourself, but for, and for bigger kids, right? You're still not giving them like the whole world of choices, but maybe instead of limiting it to two things, you could have a conversation like, well, what do you think would be a good next step? Or what do you think you'd like to do? Um, and when you say bigger kids, are you, what, what, like, are you talking about five and up? No, no. Five-year-olds still would have pretty small choices, not as small as what color socks do you want to wear. But I'm thinking kids who are middle school age or even high school age, right? Oh, okay. And, okay. But right. But being able to practice choices, you don't want the first time you ever allow your child to make a choice to be when they're 11 they're going to be awful at it. Um, and so having chance to practice that, right. So that by the time they're in high school and you're not there, they're walking through the choice making process internally. And I'll, and I'll say just as someone who does, um, who does leadership development in organizations, I, you know, I will say when you look at, when you look at adults, as leaders, as and even it doesn't matter if you're leading people, just self-leadership, the ability to make a decision and a thoughtful decision and it is, is imperative in our professional lives. And that early, you know, again, you're seeing kind of how these social emotional skills really translate into adulthood and teaching, like you're saying, teaching the small, small choices to larger choice, medium choices to larger choices is so imperative to, to, to train kids as adults. We wouldn't even think about that until we were talking about it right now. I think it's such a collaborative skill too, because children need to practice making choices. Uh, the parents and adults in their lives need to practice giving choices. Like, yeah, what is an appropriate choice? How do I know what, what my five-year-old can choose versus an 11-year-old? That kind of thing. And I remember, I used to work as a collection agent, and I remember <laughs> being taught specifically how to ask a question to people where when you give them a choice, either option is okay with you. And I think right. that I've used that a lot in my, my own training of how to ask a kid questions of, yeah, the, the red sock or the blue sock, both of those would be fine with me. It doesn't matter, but they still get the practice of Love making it. the choices. But I bet you probably get, if, if the choices you give aren't acceptable to you as a parent, you kind of back mm. yourself into a corner like, oh, wait, I didn't actually want you to pick that one. <laughs> right. So when the choices are little, everybody gets the good practice in building up to those bigger ones. Can I, I, I want to, I want to ask a question with the choices and I have so many questions for you, Christy, but. Me too. <laughs> I mean, this is just opening up a can of worms, but you know, it's interesting because I'm also thinking again from adulthood and self-leadership down to childhood, you know, I'm thinking about building critical thinking skills right now. So can you do this choice work with behavior? For example, Charlie, again, Charlie's a little bit too young, but like you're feeling, it looks like you're feeling frustrated. Let's talk about your choices of how to express that. Have you found that it works just as well with behavior? Yes, choices are actually a part of how I, so a little bit with parents, more with my graduate students that I'm teaching play therapy, but how I teach limit setting, right? And so 
and Nicole, you just did it perfectly. It's like you've been trained in play therapy, even though I don't think you have, I right? Have not. And so you acknowledge <laughs> the feeling first, which I heard you do right for Charlie. Like, oh, I know that you're really right angry right now. And then you communicate what the limit is. None of this is Christy Brumfield. This is all Gary Landreth. But okay. so um, you acknowledge the feeling, then you say what the limit is, and then you target some. What do you sort mean of, the limit? What do you mean? So the limit? if it's if a child is angry and then they are wanting to hit, then you would say, I can tell you're really angry right now, but I'm not for hitting. If they're trying to hit you as their parent, you can go and punch a pillow. Kids tell me all the time that adults always tell them to do things like punch pillows and take deep breaths and it doesn't really work. Um, but it makes for a good example because everybody has heard at some point that you should punch a pillow if you're angry. Um, but in, you would tell them some acceptable way to express that anger. Yeah. And so that piece that Kate was talking about, right? Not giving your children choices that you aren't okay with. So you're in charge of which choices you give. They're in charge of what they pick. Okay. And for parents out there listening, one of our options, again, Charlie's a little bit young, but still trying to do this with him because he definitely likes hitting. Um, we, one of the options is a dance. So we boogie, mm -hmm. which is not an option. He likes to choose a lot when he's really angry, <laughs> but it's an option. <laughs> this is a conversation I really could have used last weekend because we got... I get stuck. You know, I feel like I, I do everything. Okay. You know, I can see that you're feeling angry. And, and a lot of times my kid will say, no, I'm not. He very clearly is, mm. but it doesn't have the words, which is why I'm so intrigued about this idea of play as language. You know, if I'm, if I'm trying to use words to communicate, it's not just not getting through because that's not the language that my kids speak um, in the, you know, in these emotional situations, but you know, he's angry. And then I sort of fall apart at the choice. I'm like, well, I, mean, I guess if he wants to go bust up his room, I, what am I supposed to do about it? He's, he's an autonomous human being. Like, okay, no, you're an adult. Give him some choices. Sometimes I, I, I lose, like, what's the, in the moment, you know, everything is just kind of scrambling. It's like, I'm not sure what to say. But it sounds to me like play could be a choice in the, you know, uh, maybe... I see so like a role play now. Um, I can see you're really angry. You may not have the words for why you're angry. You can punch a pillow or you can go play with Lego. And maybe something would come from that or maybe more of a, right. I don't know. What are the options, Christy? What can I, what can I, I help my kid with here? I think the way you just said it, Kate, right? And I think sometimes for bigger kids, what I will add is, or something else, right? So you mm -hmm. can play with Legos or Play-Doh or something else. For little kids, I wouldn't say the or something else. And for a bigger kiddo, I would need them to tell me what their something else was so we could talk about if it's, oh, I think I'm going to go trash my room. Like, oh, that's actually not going <laughs> to work for us. Um, but, but that gives that. And then in terms of the labeling the feeling wrong I like that even if you're getting feedback mm. that it's wrong that you still label the feeling that's how we build feelings literacy for little kids and I just don't get into a power struggle but so I will have kids who are crying and I'm like, you you're really sad right now I'm not sad I'm angry and it's like oh I got it wrong I thought you were sad but really you're angry 
And I just sort of give that part to them. And then the whatever the next parts are stay the same, but I will use the words that they use if they are not, but I still will the next time say, oh, you are really frustrated. And what I notice over time is that kids start to pick up on some of those, because feelings are such a, even for adults, right? It's like, after we get past mad, sad, glad, it's like, well, I don't really know how I feel. Right. Um, and so then the conversation, and we know that we know that with psychological research, like labeling feelings is, is super imperative because it really, it, it's like popping the balloon and letting a little air out slowly. So you can actually hold the balloon. So you can actually talk about it. Absolutely. And I like that emotional literacy. So, so, I love, and I love what you said, don't get into the power struggle. I think that's, you know, isn't that like the root of parental frustration <laughs> um, and just educator frustration or whatever, just getting into that power struggle. And it's sometimes hard to know. It's sometimes hard in the moment to know when you actually are engaging in a power struggle. Maybe play through that too. I can see you're really mad. I need to walk away and punch some Play-Doh for a while (laughs) (laughs) until I can come back with that neutrality. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Modeling some of that for your kids, right? Modeling how to take a break. And then back to what we talked about at kind of the, the top of the episode, which is as adults being able to be connected enough with our own play, right? Because it's such a big stress reliever that then we've got more to give to our children. Hey, it's Kate here. Just popping in on this break to let you know that listening to the Hey Kiddo podcast is just one of the ways we can help you build social, emotional, and leadership skills with kids. I should know. I've been using Hey Kiddo for over two years now with my son. Hey Kiddo Talk is our award-winning pocket coach that sends quick and easy parenting tips right to your phone. And for classrooms and homeschooling families, Hey Kiddo Huddle is a full school year social emotional learning curriculum for elementary school age kids. You can get all the details and sign up today at hey-kiddo.com. You know, Christy, is, is it okay to recommend physical, like, is it, should we be recommending punch the pillow or should it be more like do 10 jumping jacks, get your energy out? Like, is it okay to be recommending potentially aggressive behavior as a choice? I think it's going to depend on the child, but I think that as long as you're not saying go punch your brother, that it's okay to say, to, to do something that's physical. Um, there's a lot of conflicting research on whether or not, so in um, the play therapy world, right, some play therapists have punching bags in their playroom Hmm. or swords or other things for aggressive play. And some people feel very strongly that those things should not be in the playroom. Um, But that aggress, those aggressive release toys or aggressive release activities are not really shown to increase aggression in Hmm. children. Um, as much as kind of the exposure to aggression or violence. And so playing an hour of aggressive video games is gonna be much worse than punching a pillow. All right, well, on that note, I have a big question for you because, uh, you know, again, everyone's playing video games and especially, you know, with this, you know, elementary school age children into middle school into high school, like let's talk screen time here. Do you have an opinion on it? Because I know most parents have been really struggling this last year and a half with the amount of screen time kids have had and, and how to move forward from it. What, what are your 
professional opinions on this? Well, it's it's a really tricky thing, right? Because for the last year and a half, people have been needing in a lot of cases to do their own work, to manage their children doing virtual schoolwork, and then to get the rest of the life things done. And so in some ways, screen time has been kind of like a necessary thing because I've had moms be like, it's the only way that I can take a shower in the morning. Yeah. Um, and so and so they get 25 minutes more than they would have gotten pre-pandemic because maybe mom before then would have taken the kids to school and come back home and taken a shower or something. Um, and so I think being a little bit easier on ourselves and recognizing that this was a hard time to really maintain those screen um, limits or screen boundaries um, when everything had to be on screen, right? So all of our social interactions were screen-based, school was screen-based, work was screen-based. And so then I was, was telling parents like, oh, well, we can look at what the American Academy of Pediatrics says, but then we have to take out time that's talking to a family member because that doesn't really count as like recreational screen time. School time, because if we count the school day, then you've got negative six hours left for screen time. And then let's say that they are missing their outside playing with friends time and it's being replaced with doing some sort of synchronous video game play with the neighbor. Then I don't really think that that needed to count. I do think that we, it would be helpful to start to move back towards a little bit more limited screen time, but being patient with your children and with yourselves, because it can't happen overnight, right? So you can't go from six and a half hours of screens every day to 30 minutes and not be dealing with the power struggle that I just said we should be trying to avoid. What it, What is the recommendation for, 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 you know, elementary school kids? I know for, for younger kids, it's like, half hour, hour at the most? Yeah, it is much lower than people usually would guess. Um, I, I could look it up, but I think it's not more than two hours. Uh, okay. And that's total screen time. So that includes smartphones, computers, um, television, Oof. everything. <laughs> <laughs> Kate, know, we, I see we think smiling. it's higher because it's wishful thinking right it's got to be higher than half an hour right yeah. right so that's right. gonna be so so yeah so with the, you're saying it can't happen all at once the power struggle is gonna happen if you do it but also I think look there's just the sciences out there with screen time there's addictive qualities to it it's there are symptoms there's withdrawal there it is hard it's hard for us to disconnect. So and there's some brain development things that happen. Um, and so mm. I think, what do you mean by that? And so I think that just some shortened attention focus. And when you look at mm. drawings of children who have more hours of screen time compared to those who've had less, but I think that there are also some benefits of screen time, screen time that we don't necessarily talk about as often, right? So it's just like video games. There are some drawbacks to video game usage, but there are some things that could be gained from it. And so like children what? are using screens to learn, right? Mm -hmm. And so the three of us 
probably went to a library and used a card catalog at some time. Most libraries have gotten rid of card catalogs, right? And so to do the thing that we used to do with the card catalog and an encyclopedia, not to age the two of you, I'll just say the things that I used to do with the card catalog. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) You just Google it, but then you're not looking at books, you're looking at a screen. And so there's this educational component. You can talk to your friend who lives on the other side of the world, right? What an awesome cultural immersion experience that you wouldn't have been able to have. And so there are some really good things that can happen using screens. Yeah. And so we don't want to throw all of that out because of the drawbacks. Right. Right. And so the, and, and yeah, it's, it, that's, that's, that's a really good point. This is not all bad. Gradually decline, give yourself a break. It's okay. Yeah. It's okay. just like, you so know, we didn't break our children. I don't think they're broken um, any more than than the adults are, um, which is maybe <laughs> arguable. But right, I think we all had more screen time. Yep. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And more of a bunch of other things, and so it's sort of the okay. Well, let's figure out what our targets are. Maybe more important, um, I'll tell families than looking at what the American Academy of Pediatrics says is to just make a family goal for screen time. And that's hard sometimes for parents because then it means that they've got to be accountable too, which if it's that we're not going to use phones at the table, then that's for parents and for teenagers. Um, If it's that we're only going to watch one TV show a night Mm -hmm. um, or one as a family and one solo or something like that, it's going to be a rule. And because parents are the models for the kids. Oh, and we're horrible with it. And I will tell you, I'll tell you most of the time when Charlie acts out, it's because Matt or I have our phone out and because we're not Mm -hmm. present with him. And this kid picks up people being present with him. Yeah, and available, emotionally available. He wants to be well, connected want to and be we're connected. breaking it and we're breaking it. Um, you know, on that, on that note, um, the last year and a half, all extracurricular stuff went away, except online stuff that we did. Like this overscheduled, crazy, get your kid involved with everything possible thing. It, we were forced to not do that anymore. But now we're going back. What's your recommendation around this? Same as with the screen time, patience and us having some grace with ourselves. I think um, one of the things that so many people have reflected on during, so it's been a few months now, but right, kind of the mid, I'm hoping it was the midpoint of the whole quarantine experience, um, was some parts of this are really tough, but there are some parts I'd love to keep. This slower pace feels nice, not rushing from school to soccer to ballet to homework feels good. Um, and so I think really re-examining, like, okay, what are the most important things? What are the things my child is actually getting something from and enjoying? What are the things that were really just to fill time? And mm-hmm. is there another way to fill time? Um, as a, a play therapist, I feel like play is the answer for that, right? Like time for just sort of free unstructured play is almost non-existent today. Um, Everything is a lot more structured than it used to be. And so if you can find times where instead of doing a really structured 
art camp, for example, your child just has some paper and crayons and they're able to just draw. Um, Or if art camp is really their thing, then you don't take that away. But maybe instead of doing um, team soccer, they have some time to go to a park and just run around. Right. And so figuring out ways where it's not as structured, where they can engage some of their own imagination and think about things. And you can start to see more about their personality in a way that's going to help you as a parent to feel more connected with your kid. But how do parents negotiate the idea of, you know, well, every kid is, you know, I I need I don't want my kid to fall behind in any way. How do they negotiate that? Whatever it is that they're negotiating in their head. And I think that that's hard. I think that there's so much pressure to excel and do well and be college ready. Um, I remember when I was first looking at daycares for my daughter, anything that said that they were trying to do some early reading thing, because really she was out, she was very young when I was first looking at daycares. I was like, okay, that place is off the list. I wanted places that had more like free play. I fully believe um, Mm -hmm. that she's going to be able to read. She's going to be able to do these academic things. Being able to read by three wasn't and isn't a priority. Um, I think I enjoy reading, right? So I'm a person who reads to her child and I think that parents reading to children is important. But I think that that over-focus is a part of what's changed our school system, why there's less recess time and more academics time, why pre-K looks now like what first grade looked like in the 50s, um, where we're expecting children to sit very still all day long. It leads to Lots of parents coming to me and wanting an assessment for ADHD and me having to yep. remind them, like, this isn't ADHD. This is just what four-year-olds look like. Right. They're kind of scattered. It's the thing they do. It's just like the moodiness of teenagers when parents come and they're like, oh, I think that my child, I don't know, has depression. Issue, but no, it's their And teenagers. it's like, no, this is just what 15 looks like. Yeah, remember? And so some of those <laughs> developmental reminders. Yep. Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. It's, I think um, we have a culture that can't be bored anymore. And it's a, it's a real disservice um, because being bored is really important. <laughs> it's really, being, being able to sit with yourself with no distractions is a really important skill to have. Oh, it's so important, but it's also exhausting now here's the cranky parent side of me but you know I'm thinking of summer I'm thinking of school breaks I'm thinking about the fact that you know we're a lot of us are still working under remote pandemic conditions where we're doing the childcare and the working at the same time and I just you know my kid comes home from after school I'm still on the clock but I'm there you know working and it's can you play with me can you play with me no I can't I'm working and then to say, well, you know, because I want to be, my kid loves video games all day long. If he could play video games, he would. Um, so then I said, no, go outside. Outside's boring. Okay. Well, you still have to go outside. <laughs> it's boring. So then now I become the like supervisor of if I don't want him to complain to me about being bored, hmm. then I have to supervise his play somehow, even if that's just here are your hmm. options which all of those are of course boring too. 
or I go, great, be on your screen until I'm done with work. And it's, so what can we do as, as cranky parents to, to, to negotiate that, how to help kids be bored while also like not having to become the supervisor? Well, my first thought for you is right. So choosing your battles. And so I think that that's one of the reasons why for parents who are working at home and then also having to do parenting simultaneously, I think letting go of some of the screen time rules until you can have some other kind of structure makes sense. But I think that boredom is kind of where creativity is born, right? And so, oh, you're bored. Maybe you write up an idea for a video game, right? A video game. Like, like, so in trying to do things that might spark some of that creativity, um, encouraging children to do reading kinds of things. So then maybe the go outside is saved for a time when you're done working and you can both go outside together. But then while you're inside, it doesn't necessarily mean that the only alternative involves a screen. Um, and that's maybe that's one idea. of those parent-child conversations later because you've got a kiddo that's big enough to have those kinds of conversations. Like, you know, earlier today when I was suggesting some things, you told me that they were all boring. What could you think of that would be some fun things? Um, did you say your son is eight? Yes. Mm-hmm. Let's think of eight fun things to do other than watch, other than play video games. And oh, then that good. could be your whole conversation, right? And then, okay, next time you're bored, we're going to try one thing off of this list. If you don't like it, we'll scratch it off and you don't have to try that one anymore. And so that kind of thing that gives back some of that power that kids are often missing. But I think I that. one of the things that you're also saying, which is so important, it starts with conversation, you know, it's a, you, you know, your child, you know, what your child likes and doesn't like. And, and I hate to be like this, you know, old farty person right now, but some of this is good for kids. <laughs> Not getting your way is actually a really good, important life lesson to integrate because stuff doesn't go your way most, a lot of the time. So I also think like, again, those conversations and those talking and parents being able to be a little vulnerable with their kids about, Hey, it's not, it's, it's not going my way either right now. Like I'm feeling like being able to express your feelings and and model healthy expression is everything. Because that's that's so good. You know, sometimes I get stuck about what can I say? It never occurred to me to say like, yeah, I don't want to be working either. Or, you know, I wish we could spend time right now or I'm not having a good, I'm bored too, you know? right. Right. but you know, it's, it's in that conversation of like, what can I say? So if oh, another little role play, so if my kid comes to me uh, and says, I'm bored after I've told him to get off the screens, my instinct, uh, cause this is how I was raised is to say something like good <laughs> or uh-huh. you're bored. If you're boring, like, uh-huh. I don't know where to take it after that, but I, could I say instead, like, because I noticed too, that if I just, if I just accept it, I just accept his boredom and accept that I hate that he asks me or tells me that he's bored. A couple minutes later, I noticed that, oh, suddenly the dinosaur toys are looking very attractive or he's on the swing set or something like that. So in that moment, could I just say, 
you know, I, I, I hear that you're bored. It probably sucks to feel that way. I'm unavailable for the next five minutes for this conversation. Go outside. <laughs> Where do I take that conversation? <laughs> it's funny because I, my immediate response to that is like, yeah, I hear you. I hear you. And it's hard to, it's hard to be bored. What are some things that you think you can do to solve how you're feeling? And so what if the answer is nothing? I get that a lot. There's nothing I can do. Very dramatic. Every there's nothing, there's no solution to this. I know it feels that way. I know it feels that way. So I'm, I'm, I'm tied up right now. I'll be done in 15 minutes. Why don't you come up with some solutions and we can talk about it in 15 minutes. Oh, that's so good. Thanks, and, oh my God, it doesn't actually work that way, but, <laughs> but it could, right? And so could. that piece, right? Where you're, cause you don't have, if you're still on the clock time for a long discussion about what to do about boredom in that minute, but just the promise of time later can work for kids. And so just, I'm working right now, but I'll be done in five minutes. And in five minutes we can do fill in the blank, right? Until then, you can choose to go outside or you can choose to draw a picture or you can choose to, you know, play with your dinosaurs. Um, I'll see you in five minutes. And then the conversation can end right there and you've given some choices. So you're not saying go outside because I said so, Mm -hmm. but you're limiting kind of, so the option is not no longer the video game. And I'm also thinking, again, I keep on thinking about adulthood and self-leadership and all of that. And like some of the complaints around, you know, from leaders around young professionals entering the workforce and the the need to be told what to do versus versus a self-starter. And when you think about these early kind of messages we send, like, okay, I'm going to jump in and solve your problem versus, hey, kid. I'll be with you in 10 minutes. You, you figure it out and you let me know what you came up with. Again, I like it. these are like, I feel like the roots of that self-starter initiative, you know, self-initiative thing that we want as adults. What are the top five takeaways that you would say to parents as, you know, as, as their kiddos are coming out of these big transitions, like we're coming out of the pandemic That's a huge, huge transition, but there are so many life transitions. So what are your big takeaways for for, for parents to help kids come out of transitions? Well, it probably would be cheating for me to just say, be patient five times, but I definitely (laughs) think that's the biggest one, right? Being patient. But I think being patient, being present, um, trying to listen and understand your children maybe a little bit of just remembering what childhood was like mm-hmm. and playing. Um, I think those are some, some of the big things that I think parents should be, should be the goals. Um, but I think some of the other takeaways are taking time for yourself, finding time to connect with your own peers instead of just planning play dates for your children um, and taking care of your own mental health, that whole kind of oversetting cliche, but really true notion of putting the mask on yourself before you try to put it on somebody else. Mm -hmm. And parents don't do that enough. We're busy trying to take care of and rescue everybody else. And if we don't take care of ourselves first, it's going to be hard to do that. Amen. 
Fantastic. Thank you so much, Christy. Christy, you're awesome. Thank you so much. This was so, this was I enjoyed combo. it. You all can invite me back anytime. You're fun to We'd talk love to. to. <laughs> We'd love to. This is awesome. Thank you so much. We'll have to have a follow-up when I report back on the 30 minutes once a week, how that goes, because as much as I think like, oh, I don't want to play with my kid. I could do that. I could do 30 minutes once a week. And to know that yeah. that's going to make a big difference. Yeah. Sign me up. When can we? That totally, that made me feel good. Like that is a a doable thing and a doable takeaway 30 minutes once a week to shape my kid's life. Yeah. Yeah. I sign 30 minutes once a week where the child is in charge and you don't have your screen. Right. And so fully present, fully, you can play other times, but, but that's the only time you got to be like 120% there. Love it. Other times, 90 is good enough. Thanks for listening to Hey Kiddo. If you like what you hear, give us a review wherever you listen. Have a question for our experts? Slide into our DMs over on Instagram at Hey Kiddo Pod or send us an email at hello at hey-kiddo.com.